Good morning. For those of you I don't know, my name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors here at Oak Valley Church and um, have the privilege this morning of concluding our identity series. And um, I want to begin where Jimmy and Booney uh, both began in the past two weeks, and that was uh, directing us to the first question in the Westminster Short Cat- Shorter Catechism, and that is, what is the chief end of man? And the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And over these past two weeks, Jimmy and Booney, they have both pointed us to um, the two of the primary ways that we glorify God and enjoy him forever. And, and they're on the wall there. We are to love God supremely. And we are to love others sacrificially. And to put it more simply, um, love God and love others. And they both also pointed us to uh, Matthew 22 in this, um, verse 36 through 39, we read, um, teacher, speaking to Jesus, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This morning we're going to look at the third statement um, that will help us understand more about um, why we exist, more about what it is to glorify God and, and enjoy him forever, and, and it is the third statement you'll see over there, that we are to live um, in the world distinctively. And that is both individually uh, in our own lives, and that, and that is also corporately um, in the lives in our life here at OVC. This is the fourth year that we have given attention to our identity series, um, and every year, we, we point to the fact that these three statements, they really can't be separated. Um, they all three work together. But not only are they um, inseparable, we, we can't just claim one or two of them, but they're also progressive. They, they build upon one another. Um, and we can't work these things backwards either. We can't jump to the end and try and live in the world distinctively, and then somehow that will make us love God supremely or make him love us supremely. That, it doesn't work that way. Um, and this point was made really clear over the past two weeks. Jimmy, in, in week one, he said this. He said, a radical love from God is met um, by a radical love for God. Um, in other words, he loved us first and then gave us a love for him. And then Booney last week said, um, our supreme love for God necessarily flows into a sacrificial love for each other. And he said, these are not separate things. One necessarily flows from the other. So there's a progression there. And, then, and, and today, we're continuing in that, progressive, in that progression. Um, in other words, the only way that we're going to live in this world distinctively is if first Christ has loved us supremely and given us a supreme love for him. And then that love that he has put within us has overflowed into a sacrificial love for one another. Um, if those two things are true in our life, then it would necessarily mean that we would also live in this world um, distinctively. And I want to help us this morning by defining the word distinct. Um, it is an adjective here that describes something or someone, and maybe you want to write this, this definition down, um, describes someone that is recognizably different in nature or quality from something else of a similar type. I'll say it again. When we use the word distinct, we're pointing to something or someone that is recognizably different in nature or quality from something else of a similar type. Look around the room this morning. Um, in fact, it's, it's easier to do now that we've 
adjusted our, our chairs, and we, we did that so you could see and hear each other uh, sing better, and I do want to say that uh, it was really good hearing you sing this morning. The choir was loud, um, sung with joy and gladness. I could see that. But as you look around this morning, uh, we're all of a similar type. We're, we're human. We've been created in the image of God. And yet we can also look around the room this morning and see that there are differences in age, differences in uh, gender, fashion, occupation, um, interests, hobbies, um, preferences, opinions. But all of these things are just the first layer of the onion, so to speak, as we look around. Um, when we use the word distinct, what we're really pointing to to describe a believer as they live in this world, we're pointing to the deeper aspects of their lives. We're pointing to their nature um, and, and a nature in them that as it overflows, um, it overflows into them being seen in this world as living distinct, as recognizably different from others of a similar type. This is what we mean in being distinct. There should be something different about those who profess to follow Christ. We are new creations. We are not the same inside. We, we think different. We view life differently. We, our lives are guided by principles that others would say, well, that really doesn't make sense. We relate to one another um, we relate to all people differently, but we most especially relate to one another differently. We handle problems differently. Um, we walk through pain and suffering in a way that others would look at us and say, how do they have this strange joy as they're walking through trial and suffering? And that's because we are distinct as Christians. And ultimately, our distinction has everything to do with the one whom we follow. We follow Christ, and he is Distinct, And therefore, as his followers, um, we are to follow his example. We are to live in a way that we are distinct. And Booney's already mentioned this, but um, he's, Jesus is so much more than our example, but he is not less than that. Um, if you remember back to our series in 1 Peter, uh, chapter 2, verse 21, um, Peter says, For to this you have been called, and what we've been called to is to suffer for doing good, or in other words, to face persecution for being different, for being distinct. But he said, to this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And so if we're going to call ourselves followers of Christ, then it would only make sense that we would follow in his steps. As we examine the example that he did leave for us, um, we could ask the question, well, what made him distinct? And the reason we need to understand this is because the more we understand about what made him distinct, um, the more and better we'll understand what makes believers distinct as we seek to live in this world. In our text this morning, uh, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 20. You can go and turn there. We'll be in verses 17 through 28. And the overarching theme of this text is um, it's, all, it's all about service. And the fact that Christ came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the overarching theme of this text. And in this text, I've picked out, there's probably more, but we've picked out five points of distinction. And we'll use these as points to guide us this morning. But I'll give you those now and I'll give you them again as we get to them. But the first point of distinction about Jesus is this. Um, he is the son of man and he is the son of God. Our second point of distinction this morning from Matthew 20 is that 
Jesus was raised to life on the third day. Third point, in humility, Jesus drank the bitter cup. Our fourth point, Jesus' life was one of serving rather than being served. And then our fifth point, his life was given as a ransom for many. If you would, let's read our text together in Matthew chapter 20 now. Beginning in verse 17. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up with him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, We are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those who, uh, for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The section of teaching this morning by Jesus is clearly full of the substance of Christian living and what it means to live in this world distinctly. And what it means is to live with sacrifice and humility and servanthood. And this is the teaching that we would do well this morning to heed carefully um, and to embrace with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we need grace to hear these things and understand them, and we, we really need grace to embrace these things in our lives and make them a reality here at OVC. So let's begin this morning by praying uh, and asking God to, to do these things. Father, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful that you are sovereign over all things, that in your sovereignty you have made a way of salvation through your Son, Christ. This morning, as we examine what it is that makes him distinct, Father, would you help us see these things and, and, and see how the overflow of these things fall onto his followers and put a call in our lives to live distinct as well. Would you do these things by the power of your spirit? As we ask them in your son's name, amen. Our first point this morning, Jesus is the son of man and the son of God. Um, verses 17 through 19, we, we read that uh, Jesus and his disciples, we'll set a little context here, Jesus and his disciples, they are 
between the transfiguration and, and Jerusalem. They're traveling to Jerusalem. And let's be reminded of what happened at the transfiguration. You have Jesus and Peter and James and John um, are on a mountain by themselves with Jesus. And uh, there Jesus is physically transformed. It says his face shone like the sun and his clothes became bright as white light. And Moses and Elijah appear there as well. And then the, a, a bright cloud overshadows them. A, a cloud very reminiscent of the one of God's presence and glory that appeared many times in the Old Testament. And the appearing of this cloud um, terrified uh, James and Peter and John. It says they fell on their face um, and they were terrified. And then the voice of God the Father from the cloud um, announces his endorsement of Jesus as his beloved son in whom he is well pleased. So we see from there that Jesus is clearly the son of God. He is God the son. He's fully God. And now we get to verse or we get to chapter 20 and this is the third time that Jesus is communicating to his disciples what lies in wait for him in Jerusalem. He refers to himself again as the son of man. And as the son of man he would be betrayed and condemned to death by crucifixion but that he would be raised again to life on the third day. And in verse 28, later on, again, he refers to himself as the Son of Man who came to serve and give his life as a ransom. In the New Testament, um, at least 82 times, we hear Jesus refer to himself as the Son of Man. In fact, it seems that this is the preferred title that he uses to refer to himself. Um, and the point is that this title, Son of Man, it's pointing to his humanity and is pointing to his humility. So he's not only fully God, but he is also fully man. He's fully, de fully divine, fully human. Um, and in his incarnation, Jesus humbled himself. He took on flesh, was born in the likeness of men, and dwelt among humanity. Yet he dwelt among them in a way that was very distinct. He was fully man, therefore um, he was like us in every way. But he was also fully God. Therefore, he knew no sin, and therefore distinct as the Son of Man and the Son of God. And then second point of distinction we see from the text this morning about Jesus is that he was raised to life on the third day. Uh, he wasn't distinct because he was betrayed and delivered over to the chief uh, priests and scribes. Many more had faced um, that betrayal and that death sentence before. He wasn't, wasn't even distinct because he was handed over to the, the Gentiles, to the Romans, to be uh, crucified Again, countless others before and after him faced that same fate at the hands of the Romans. We actually talked about this um, with our fourth through sixth graders on Wednesday night. We, um, we were looking at Christ, our high priest, and looking at the Day of Atonement. And, and I asked them this question, was Jesus the only one to ever die on a cross? And first they thought it was a trick question, and so they kind of hesitated for a moment. But we eventually agreed, no, Jesus was not the first were the last to ever die on a cross. And um, then I asked him the next logical question, well, what happened to every person that has ever been crucified, including Jesus? They all died. So I asked the next logical question, um, what made Jesus different? And they came to two conclusions, and um, the first one was, uh, they were both true, but the first one was, well, the ones who weren't all Jesus stayed dead. They did. Second conclusion was that Jesus was the only one who came back to life. So we have some smart fourth through sixth graders, but um, 
We see here in the text that Jesus is distinct because as the Son of Man and Son of God, he was the only one able. He was the only one qualified to fully drink the cup of wrath and suffering that was prepared for him, to take on the sins of his people, to taste death, but not stay dead, but to be raised and live. It's his resurrection on the third day that makes him distinct. And our third distinction this morning is that uh, in humility, he drank the bitter cup. And we're going to spend a lot of time here in this. But looking at verses 20 through 23, be reminded Jesus had just told his disciples for the third time that he is going to go to Jerusalem and he was going to die at the hands of the Romans and at the hands of the chief priests and scribes. But they would that he would be raised again on the third day. He wouldn't stay dead. And it's in this context that Matthew sets this approach of the mother of the sons of Zebedee as she comes to Jesus. And this is the mother of James and John. Um, they were two of the disciples that were in Jesus' uh, sort of three-man intercourse, so to speak, Peter being the other one of those. And her name isn't given here, but most scholars would agree that this is uh, Salome, um, who is the sister of Jesus' mother, Mary. So this would make James and John cousins of Jesus. But the three of them, they come before Jesus, and the mother, um, acknowledging Jesus' authority, she, she kneels before him, and she has a single request. And Jesus looks down at her and says, what do you want, or, or what is your wish? And she replies, say that my sons will sit beside you in your kingdom, one at your right hand and and one at your left hand. And as we think about kingdoms for a moment, in a kingdom, the two most prestigious seats belonged to those who sat closest to the king, on his right and on his left. And, and the picture here was that all of the authority, all of the power, all of the majesty that the king had would proverbially overflow from his throne and from him onto, most heavily onto those who sat closest to him and anoint them. And, and I know what you're all thinking here in, in reading this text. Um, man, I can't believe that this mother would ask for that. You, have you thought about that in reading this? I, I can't believe that this mother would ask Jesus for this, for her sons, the audacity that she has. Maybe you're even thinking, man, I would never ask that. Eh, we might. And those are my first thoughts when I read this, read this too, as I'm being honest. Man, this woman's crazy. But before we totally condemn her, listen, let's be reminded that this type of thing happens all the time. I'm not saying it was right. I'm just saying it's, it's common. Think about it for a moment. What happens that every time when someone new comes into power? New president, new boss, new foreman on the job, new CEO, new superintendent. What do all the people do? They scramble to get where? right up underneath that person. They want to get as close as they possibly can because they understand that that's where they will most likely receive the most power and authority and majesty, so to speak, that they can receive. And that's exactly what James and John's mother is doing here. So when we look at this request by her, um, there are aspects of it that are wrong, sure, but there are also aspects of it that are right. And we might say to ourselves, man, doesn't she know who she's talking to? And the answer to that is yes. She actually does know who she's talking to. She rightly recognizes the truth that Jesus is about to come into his kingdom. 
She's just heard what? He's going to die, but he's going to what? He's going to be raised on the third day. She understands rightly that his kingdom is coming about, and she has absolute confidence in the future reality of this kingdom. She fully believed and, and had hope in what Jesus had said would happen on the third day, that he would be resurrected, and she was totally convinced that he would reign as king of kings in this kingdom. And I had to ask myself this week, man, am I as convinced as this, as this woman is about Jesus' kingship, that he's king of kings and lord of lords? Am I as confident as she is that Jesus eternally reigns on his throne full of authority and power and glory? And if I'm honest, there are times in my life I don't act like I believe these things to the extent that she did. And, and I would pose that question to you as well. So she rightly reckons, recognized his kingship, but she does ask a question that's um, pointed in the wrong direction, so to speak. And did you notice Jesus' response to her? It's almost a response of pity. Look at what she says there, or he says. He says to her, you have no idea what you're asking for. If you truly knew what you were asking for, you would get up right now and you would run away because those closest to me, those at my right and those at my left, they're not going to be associated with glory. They're going to be associated with my infamy. They're not going to be associated with prestige, but instead they're going to be, in, they're going to be associated with my suffering. They're not going to be associated with great pride, but instead with my humiliation. And then Jesus asks them if they're able to drink the cup that he is about to drink. And before we get to this answer, um, we really need to take a moment and, and ask the question, what is this cup that Jesus is talking about here? What is this cup? It's not a cup that is overflowing with joy and, and gladness and life. It's a cup that's filled with suffering and sorrow and, and death. It's filled with the full wrath of God. And this cup is symbolic of the suffering and anguish that Jesus was about to endure on the cross. And he would be required to drink this cup in its entirety. And he knew just how bitter and just how difficult it would be to drink this cup, yet he knew that is exactly what he had come to do. And we look at look merely at the physical side for a moment of this cup, um, and we understand that crucifixion was a, a practice that was practiced regularly by the Romans, and it's, this mode of death is still widely believed to be probably the worst form of execution. Um, it was painfully excruciating, brought about public shame. Okay, a person would be uh, placed on a cross, it'd be two pieces of wood fashioned together, and on that cross, they would be nailed to the cross member by their hands and nailed to the upright by their feet and be stood up on this and, and hanging, the full weight of their body hanging on their arms. Most of the time, um, if they could endure the physical pain that it, that it took to mount them on the cross and not die of shock, they would eventually die of asphyxiation, suffocation, because the only way to breathe, because of all the weight of their body being on their arms, um, was collapsing their lungs in a way that the only way that they could breathe was to push against the nails in their feet and pull themselves up just to take one breath. Just to slowly lower themselves down and again feel the full weight of their body on their hands and their feet and their back and their lungs. It was a horrific way 
to die. And yet, this was not the most horrific part of this bitter cup that Jesus would drink. Another bitter part we don't like to think about oftentimes is the fact that all of this was brought on by the Father. God would be the ultimate source of Jesus' sufferings, even though Jesus was the faithful, innocent, sinless servant. Turn your Bibles over to Isaiah 53 for a moment. In Isaiah 53, we're looking at this innocent servant, Jesus. The lamb who would be led to the slaughter. And Look down to verse 4. Speaking of Jesus, it says he would be smitten by who? Smitten by God. Afflicted. Verse 6. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, meaning God, has put him to grief. Although, in verse 9, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Think about that for a moment. From eternity past, from before the foundations of the world, God had planned that his son would drink this bitter cup of wrath in service to him and in service to his people as he became a ransom for them. And when we look at what this physical, the physical side of this looked like, if we continue there in Isaiah 53, look back up in verse 3 again, um, we read of all that has been placed on Jesus. Verse, verse 3, he was despised, was rejected. He knew sorrow and grief. Verse 4, he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. Verse 5, he was pierced, crushed, chastised, wounded. Verse 6, all of our iniquities were laid on him. Verse 7, he's oppressed, afflicted. Verse 8, he's cut off out of the land of the living. living. He's stricken. Verse 10, he was crushed, put to grief. Verse 11, his soul was anguished, and he bore our iniquities. Verse 12, he poured out his soul to death. He bore the sins of many. Intense physical and emotional suffering were no doubt bitter for Jesus. Yet no suffering would be more bitter than the spiritual pain that awaited him. This Physical suffering happened to him on the outside and this emotional suffering and sorrow and grief and anguish were experienced on the inside. But then there is this, this spiritual forsakenness that would take place. And um, in some way the father here um, forsakes the son. And this is no doubt the deepest, darkest part of Jesus' suffering. And I don't want to speculate too much here on what this looked like for fear of being heretical. But... Um, there are some things that we do know. We know that God has existed from eternity past as one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And these three persons have existed in perfect unity and perfect fellowship within the Godhead. John 1 is clear on this. But at that, but that day on the cross, something unimaginable, something indescribable happened there in some way, the Father forsook Jesus. We read it in Matthew 27, verse 46, that Jesus cries out from the cross, My God, my God, why 
have you forsaken me? And these are some of the most profoundly mysterious words that we find in Scripture. But in some sense here, Jesus is cut off from the favor and fellowship that he had experienced with the Father from eternity past. Why? Because he was enduring the wrath of God for the sins of his people. For us. According to 2 Corinthians 5, 21... Um, Jesus, the one who knew no sin, was made to be what? Was made to be sin. An important distinction here, um, he was not made sinful. Okay, He was made to be sin. He is sinless and he is perfect. But the Father regarded and treated the sins of his people as if those sins belong not to Jesus, or excuse me, not to his people, but to Jesus. And in Galatians 3.13, it says that Jesus became a curse for us, for curse that is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And in 1 Peter 2, we, we're reminded of what Jesus accomplished there on that tree. It says he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. And so this is the cup that, that James and John are asking about, a cup full of intense physical and emotional and spiritual Bitterness, so intense that in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is praying there, and it says that his soul was very sorrowful, even to death, as he considered this cup. And he prayed three times that that cup would pass. Matthew 26, 39, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but your will be done. 2642, again, my father, if this cup cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And then in verse 44, um, Jesus went away and prayed for a third time, saying the same words again. But the answer that he got was a resounding no. This cup is yours. And Jesus, at the will of his father and on behalf of his people, humbled himself and fully drank that cup and herein lies the distinction of Jesus in humility he fully drank the bitter cup that was prepared for him uh, we read it this morning in our um, I don't remember if it was our assurance of pardon but um, yes Philippians 2 in our assurance of pardon Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God again looking at his humility did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. What did he do? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He humbled himself to drink the bitter cup of wrath that God had prepared for him. And so now we get back to the question that James and John and the mother have posed here in Matthew 20. And Jesus asks them, are you able... To drink this cup that I am to drink. James and John answer, we are what? We're able. I'm sure you've heard this expression. Some people would say, there's no such thing as stupid questions, just what? Stupid answers. I think that's probably debatable here, but especially since the fact that Jesus has already said, you don't know what you're asking for. Okay. We can all agree with the second half of that statement that there are stupid answers, and, and this is certainly one of those. 
Their response demonstrates the truth of what Jesus had just told them. You really don't know what you're asking for. And you really don't know that you are not able to do this, at least not to the fullest extent. And despite the fact that they are not able to fully drink the cup that was set before Jesus, he still says it in there in verse 23, but you will drink this cup. You will drink my cup because this cup that I will drink on the cross it will spill over. And it will spill over on those who are closest to me. And it will drench them head, heart, and mind. And those that follow me will drink this cup as well. Not to the fullest, but they'll drink it. And Jesus is saying to James and John here, okay, you want to follow me. You want to sit at my right? You want to sit at my left? Then, then be ready. Prepare yourself because it means you're going to share in my sorrow. You're going to share in my suffering. You're going to share in my pain. You're going to share in my humiliation. And interest, interestingly enough, as we continue to read throughout Scripture, um, James becomes the first martyr. When we look at John. He suffers great persecution and is, is exiled. So we see, we see that they do indeed drink the cup. For us here this morning, we would be, do well to remember uh, what Romans 6 has to say as well as, as followers of Christ. We, we too will share in his rejection and in his suffering and his humiliation, his sorrow and in his death. Romans 6 verse 3, we read, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his what? You're baptized into his death. And again there in the beginning of verse 4, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. And hopefully you remember back a few months ago, we were studying through First Peter, and every week we hammered the point home. We pointed to you to the fact that we're going to face what? As his people, we're going to face suffering. We're going to face pain. We're going to face persecution. First Peter 4.13, we will share in Christ's sufferings. So for those closest to him, um, this bitter cup of wrath that he would drink, this bitter cup of sorrow and pain and death, it is going to spill over on us. And we're going to share in Christ's sufferings. We'll share in his humiliation and we will share in his death. But there's hope. Go back to point two. Okay, it's sort of a sub point of point two here. Verse 19, he will be what? Raised to life on the third day. Because of this, those closest to him, yes, they share in his death. Because they share in his death, they also walk now in a newness of life and will one day share in Christ's resurrection and exaltation, and they will rejoice and be glad on that day. Because if you continue reading in Romans 6, verse 4 says, We were buried, therefore, with, his, with him by baptism into death. For what? In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of his Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we've been united with him in his death, in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And if you continue to read there in verse 13 in 1 Peter 4, it says, But in, rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So we have hope in the resurrection. 
Jesus is continuing here with his answer to James and John in verse 23. He says, he says, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and to sit at my left is not mine to grant. It is for those whom it has been prepared by my Father. And this is another distinction. We don't make a point of it here, but this is a distinction between Jesus as king and, and earthly kings. Every earthly king that has ever lived um, has assumed the authority and the power to name those who sit on his right and left. The king appoints who sits on his right and his left, but Jesus doesn't do this. Instead, he, again, looking at his humility, he acts in humility and tells James and John, uh, the honor of sitting at my right and left, those are not mine to give. Um, these positions are reserved for the Father to give. So what we see here is that Jesus, he is the Father's anointed king. And the kingdom has been given to Jesus. Um, yet even in his enthronement, Jesus is walking in humility, subordinate to the Father. And it is the Father who determines who will sit in his kingdom as king. And that is his son. And it is also the Father who determines who will sit at the right and left hand of his son, the king. And so he answers to James and John, those positions aren't mine to give, but fathers alone. It brings us to our fourth point this morning, that his life, speaking of Jesus' life, was one of serving rather than being served. We pick up reading there in verse 24. It says, And when the ten heard, they were indignant at the two brothers. I imagine that might be understated just a little bit. Consider also the fact that Peter, um, who, again, reading through Scripture, Peter would probably say, I'm the leader of this group of, group of disciples. If anybody deserves to be at the top of the list, it's me. Okay, but he's not asking for this position. But we see they're all indignant. Surely Peter was as well. They're greatly displeased, and understandably so. Two of their fellow disciples had just tried to skip, the front of the, skip to the front of the line. They made a beeline to the seats of power, at least they tried to, and on the way trample over the rest of the disciples. And we don't know exactly why they were indignant. Maybe it was just, maybe they were, maybe it was a righteous indignant. Maybe, maybe they were righteously indignant. I struggle with words. They, maybe they're looking and going kind of the same that we would. I can't believe James and John would ask for that power. Nobody should. But I kind of put myself in their shoes, and it's probably not why I would be indignant. I'd probably be indignant because I didn't think to ask that before they did. I'm being honest. I probably would have wanted those, that seat as well, and it would have been about the fact that I, I failed to ask before them. But nonetheless, they're all indignant, and, and Jesus calls them all to himself. He tells them this in verse 25. He says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. In other words, he's saying these, these rulers, these, these great ones that you see, um, they have this at the right hand and at the, at the left hand power that you're asking for, and what do they do with it? They lord it over the people. They, they use it in a very unrighteous way. 
They're quick to exercise wrongly that power and authority over their subjects. And Jesus makes a clear distinction here. Like, circle this, highlight it. It shall not be so among you. Why? Because it's not so among him. He's saying, if you're going to follow me, you're not going to lord anything over anyone. This, this doesn't fit the agenda of my father's kingdom, but there is another way that does fit the agenda of his kingdom. Fits his purposes, fits his plans. And verse 26 tells him what that looks like. You don't need the power that's at my right and left hand. You'll abuse it. You'll lord it over them. You will wrongly exercise it. But in verse 26, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And this isn't the first time in Matthew we've heard this. Um, Matthew 19, Jesus has just taught about salvation. He said, that, looking at the rich man, he said it would be easier um, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to be saved. And his disciples answer, well, well, then who in the world could be saved? And Jesus said, with man, this is what? Impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And and then Jesus goes on and he assures his disciples that in this new world, you're going to receive, or you're going to be reigning on a throne and you're going to have eternal life and um, you're going to sit on these 12 thrones and judge the, the 12 tribes of Israel. But then, almost like in a way to humble them, he reminds them of this statement in Matthew 19.30, but many are who are first will be last. And the last first. Then in Matthew 20, in the section right before we get to this, Jesus has told a parable of the laborers in the vineyard. And in this, he's teaching that in his kingdom, um, salvation and eternal life are not given based off of what a person does or earns, but instead they are freely given by God in his grace. And again, he concludes in a very humbling way in verse 16, so the last will be first and the first last. And the point here is that this kingdom, it is a distinct kingdom. And the king of this kingdom is distinct. Therefore, his subjects must be distinct too. A disciple of Jesus doesn't measure their worth by comparing their worth to others. As members of Oak Valley, we don't compare our worth in the kingdom or in this local expression of the kingdom. We don't compare our worth to the worth of somebody else. Um, Instead, the message here is that um, the message to those who got angry, the message to us who would maybe get angry is that we look to the giftings and whatever of other people and compare our work to them is that we shouldn't be fighting over the spots at the right and left hand of Jesus. We should rather um, focus on what we can do to rightly serve in this kingdom. From a heart of gratitude, understanding that the salvation and eternal life that we've been given is no result of our own work, but is a result of the grace of God. So again, he tells them in verse 27, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. You want the highest position in my kingdom? Take the lowest position. Be a servant. Be a slave. 
be that for others in this world and most especially be that for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Because in doing so, you show what it is like to be my disciple. You reflect my character and you show that you are living in this world distinctively. And this brings us to our fifth point this morning, last one, is that Jesus' life was given as a ransom for many. Look there in verse 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says, I came to serve, you serve. I came to give my life for you, give your life for me and for each other. And I came not only to pay the ransom, I came to be the ransom. I came to give up my life on the cross for the, for the forgiveness of your sins. And, and Paul would put it this way. He says, because you've been ransomed, you are now not your own. You've been bought with a price. And the price was the broken body and poured out blood of the Son of Man, of Jesus. And therefore, as his followers... We share in his suffering. We share in his sacrifice. We share in his servanthood. And we share in his death. But again, there's hope. Because Christ has given his life as a ransom for the sins of his people. There's hope. And so if you share in his death, you'll also share in his life. As he was raised to life, you too will be raised with him on that day. So what is it that makes Christians distinct in the world? It has everything to do with the one whom they follow. It has everything to do with in following Jesus, the distinct one. That the cup that he drank on the, on the cross has overflowed and spilled over and landed squarely on our heads and hearts and minds and has placed a call on us as believers to not only be distinct in this world, but to live in a way that is distinct and to look distinct in comparison to all others. What does this look like? We'll use our five points this morning to help us understand what this looks like. Christ is the Son of God and the Son of Man. As his followers, we are children of God. We are joint heirs with Christ. We belong to a family and a kingdom that is not of this world and we should reflect that. Just as Christ was raised to life on the third day as his followers, we will share in his glorious resurrection when he returns. We have a hope, and we have a promise for the future. That should affect the way that we live in this world. We have a promise and a hope. Just as Christ humbly drank the bitter cup prepared for him as his followers, we will also drink that cup in a way. We will walk and humble obedience to his commands and the works which he has prepared for us. And then just as Christ came to serve rather than to be served, we as his followers are to take the lowly positions of servant and slave in this world, most especially among our people. And then last, just as Christ gave his life as a ransom for many, we as his followers we understand that our lives are not our own. We've been bought with a price, and therefore we die to ourselves, we take up our cross, and we live lives that are dedicated to the glory of God and to the good of others. And all of this is bound up in loving God supremely, 
loving others sacrificially. Um, We physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually are called to give our lives in service to God, in service to one another. We walk in obedience to him and his word. We glorify him. We enjoy him forever. And in doing so, we should stick out like a sore thumb, so to speak, in this world. We should look different for all the right reasons. I can speak for Jimmy and for Booney in in saying this. um, As your pastors, we long for this to be true in your lives. We long for this to be true in our lives. And we know that along the way there's going to be struggles. Um, We'll struggle to make these things a constant reality in our lives, but that is precisely why we gather week after week and read what we read and pray what we pray and sing what we sing and preach what we preach. We need to be pointed to the glory of the triune God every week, daily. Um, And this is why we believe it's important year after year to give attention to our identity series because we never want to lose sight um, of who we are whose we are, and why we exist. Pray with me. Father, would you work these truths from your word deep into our hearts? Father, show us your sovereignty, your goodness, your glory. Show us the majesty of Christ seated on his throne, ruling and reigning Help us see the sacrifice that is him in giving his life as a ransom for all who would trust in him. Father, help us see that if we claim to follow you, that we have a call on our lives to live distinctively in this world. And we understand that that will not happen apart from loving you supremely and loving others sacrificially. So by your grace, would you work these things in and through us? Pray in the power of your spirit and by your son's holy name. Amen.